Hello, and welcome to Sprott Radio. I'm your host, Ed Coyne, Senior Managing Partner at Sprott Asset Management. I'm pleased today to welcome Joe Lowry, founder and president of Global Lithium LLC. Joe, thank you for joining Sprott Radio. Thank you for having me. Joe, before we dive into the world of lithium, please tell us a bit about yourself and the company you started back in 2012. The company I started in 2012 only had meaning because I spent the prior 23 years with a company called FMC Lithium, which was one of the, when I joined, two major Western lithium companies in the world. And I grew up in that industry and I had the privilege to happen to stumble upon being the first guy really to sell lithium chemicals to the lithium ion battery space. I started going to Japan every six weeks from 95 to 2000. And finally they just said, why don't you just move over there? So my family packed up. We moved to Kobe, Japan, lived there for five and a half years, then moved to China where I lived for five and a half years. And I knew everybody in the lithium ion battery space. I moved back to the U.S., ultimately left FMC and started Global Lithium, but with the ability to stay in the industry that I loved and with connections to everybody in the lithium ion space. Well, you're a founding father, and I, and I talked to a few experts in this space, and I was told to refer to you as Mr. Lithium. So I apologize <laughs> for not saying that at the start, but uh, no, your reputation is incredible in this space, you know, and three decades plus of experience. What have been some of the milestones in lithium over those last three decades that are really something worth pointing out today? When I first started, there was no lithium ion battery. And when it happened, the company I work for said, this thing will never fly. So, but we had joint ventures in Japan. We had a Japanese company that we dealt with that believed in it. And because we controlled the raw material, they actually developed the key relationships at first with Sony and Matsushita, which you would call Panasonic now. And that's how I came in as I just stumbled across it as I happened to be responsible for the two product lines that the lithium uh, space adopted is the raw materials for the for battery cathode. What attracted me to this industry was the fact that it was so diverse. It was tiny, but you can't make post-it notes without lithium. You can't make the statin anti-cholesterol drugs without lithium. Windscreens and airliners have lithium in it. I loved all that diversity. But going forward, lithium is a battery business. End of story. To that point, you collaborate with a lot of different players in this space, from producers to users to battery manufacturers, governments, even Wall Street. Would you mind kind of walking us through each one of those sort of ecosystems, how they're different? What are some of the demands that you're finding in those different ecosystems? Let's, let's start with the producers. How are you collaborating with some of the producers out there, and who are some of the big producers? There's a big four, we would say, and it would be Albemarle, which is based 30 minutes from where I'm sitting in Charlotte, North Carolina, and SQM, which is a Chilean company, and then two Chinese companies, Gangfen and Tanchi. And then the next tier would be somebody like Alivent, which was FMC Lithium, who I worked for for a long time. And they have just decided to merge with the next guy, Allchem, which was a combination of Galaxy, which was had an Australian asset and some assets in Canada and Argentina, now we're down to, to six, but the big four really dominate. And then you talk about the companies in Western Australia that 
historically didn't make lithium chemicals. They made a precursor called spodumene. And, but lithium is still a pretty small world dominated by the, the first four I mentioned. And if you go back to, say, 2020, they had over 70% of production. That will, over time, continue to diminish as new players come on. But this is still not like big oil where you have uh, you know much more diversity of supply it's still a small industry that probably is going to consolidate as you see alchem and livent merging you'll have juniors come up and juniors will probably be acquired so we'll we'll see what happens well i bet you um, virtually all of our listeners were surprised to hear north carolina being one of the big four as it relates to lithium. Everyone thinks about China and other parts of the world being big players in lithium, but that's surprising even to me, you know, to think about it that way, that it's in our backyard. And and people, I think, a lot of times don't pay attention to that, particularly in the U.S. Well, in the 1950s, the U.S. government put three players in business to get the trigger for the hydrogen bomb. And that was the genesis of the lithium industry. One of them was U.S. Borax, who quickly dropped out. The other two are what's now Albemarle and what's now Livent. And they both had mines in North Carolina. And initially, we actually got the spodumene concentrate for the lithium that the government wanted from Canada. But even back then, they didn't want it to even be in Canada. They wanted it to be in inside the continental United States, which is why the two mines in North Carolina were built. And that was the lithium industry up into the 60s, 70s, when I joined in 1990 at what's now Albemarle, was no longer mining in North Carolina, but what's now Livent still was. And by the end of that decade, everybody was out in the United States, except for one small brine production that Albemarle had in Silver Peak, Nevada. So we totally ceded world dominance in lithium over, over the time period. Let's shift and talk about the users and the, I guess, the producers or manufacturers. Who are some of those, and do you see those evolving over time? What does the consumption side of lithium look like today? Well, it's it's certainly dominated now by lithium-ion battery. And lithium-ion battery for the first 10 or 15 years was really mobile devices. But in the last several years, it's transitioned to being e-mobility. So it's the Tesla's. It's all the EV makers in China, and it's the legacy OEMs that are trying to to move to electrification that will dominate this space. Now, from a lithium purchasing perspective, early on, it was the cathode makers. They sourced all the lithium. Then the battery guys got nervous that the cathode guys didn't really know what they were doing, so the battery makers started to source. But as we move into the next 10 years, most of the big contracts will be done by the Teslas of the world. So we're seeing the transition moving down the supply chain from cathode to battery into OEMs. And if you look at Mm -hmm. announcements, whether it's Ford or GM, everybody's announcing what their strategy is to source not just lithium, but battery metals in general. But I will say this now and probably repeat it again, that you can make a lithium-ion battery without nickel or cobalt, but you can't make a lithium-ion battery without lithium. So the demand is it's just ever-growing. Where are we going to get all this supply? Because all these companies want to go carbon neutral. They want to go 100% battery by 2030, 2035. Where is it coming from? I will hearken to the words of Elon Musk that says, 
Lithium's everywhere. And Elon's right about that. But the fact of the matter is lithium isn't in very many places where you can get it in mass quantities economically. And that's where Elon's first principles rhetoric falls off the side of the table. Australia's number one now. And they were just a bit player for most of the last 20 years because it was dominated really by Chile in the Atacama Desert. But if you go back five, six years In 2020, global lithium demand was 300,000 tons of lithium carbonate equivalents. By 2023, it will be somewhere between 3 million and 3.5 million. Abelmarle would tell you it would be a little more than that. So when people start talking about uranium and iron ore and making those comparisons, I always ask them, tell me a time when either of those or any business you want to reference grew 10x in a decade. If you're not talking about software or apps, you can't tell me that story in something that's real and physical. Well, this brings in government. How active are governments around the world in trying to fast track mines? Are they being disruptive? What's their role to play in all this? That's really the problem. People love to talk about the IRA, the curiously <laughs> named Inflation Reduction Act, which is nothing <laughs> of the sort, but a lot of money's going to get thrown around. The problem with that is, You have kind of a left-leaning government wanting to do what the left wants, which is give everybody an EV, but they don't want any mining associated with it. And I applaud wanting to build batteries here. I applaud wanting to reinvigorate our manufacturing. You know, you've mentioned China a lot. Talk to me about China, because when we talk to our clients, we talk to our shareholders, our investors, that seems to be the boogeyman in the room, so to speak. Where does China sit in this entire ecosystem as it relates to lithium? Well, it's really interesting you use that word because one of my best friends in the industry is a company called Gangfen. And I knew them when they didn't have two RMB to rub together. And there's two poor guys that are both multi-billionaires now because they had vision. To China's credit, back then, and I go back to 2002, 2003, when I first was doing business with them, the provinces in China were supporting all these kind of projects. And most of these Little lithium companies didn't make any money, but they kept building capacity and they kept signing contracts with sourcing outside of the, you know, the borders of China. They were way ahead of the curve. So when when Americans or Westerners talk about this as a, you know, some kind of conspiracy or something that's nefarious, I was just just would say, hey, we got our butts kicked. These guys had more vision than we did. They're willing to put money in ahead of the curve. They're not totally NPV focused, and that's why they're well positioned. But when people say China dominates the lithium industry, that's nonsense. The biggest lithium company in the world, as I said, is in my backyard, Abelmoral in Charlotte, North Carolina. Now, their assets may be in Western Australia and Chile, but their resource assets aren't in China. The best resources are not in China. And so that is something that I'd I'd like your audience to understand. Now, maybe rare earths is a different story, but in terms of the lithium market, China's almost totally dependent. Their internal resources are very low quality and small, but they're dependent on Western Australia or Chile or Argentina to get the feedstock to uh, convert. We've talked about the government. We've talked about the producers, the consumers. I guess the last one, which is the world we kind of live in, is Wall Street. What will take Wall Street 
to get get behind this on a permanent basis and not just simply look at it as an opportunistic trade, but really think about long-term investment. What do you think needs to happen there? Uh, that That's a tough one. You can build a gigafactory in two years, but to bring on a lithium asset from a greenfield perspective, including the exploration time, you're talking about a decade. And Wall Street is not patient money, by and large. So it is a situation where who has really carried the water in that regard is Australians and Canadians. I mean, the ASX and the TSX are much more the home of lithium companies or lithium developers because it's easier to raise money in commodity-based countries. You know, if you're going to invest in some 18-year-old that's building an app that, you know, might become DoorDash or something, you're probably going to do that before you say, oh, yeah, gee, we can put a billion dollars in and maybe the thing will be built and maybe it'll run in seven years. That, right. that That's not a Wall Street theme that's going to get a, a lot of traction. What has happened is it's easy to raise five, 10, 15 million to explore. What's hard is to get the money to develop something. Mm-hmm. And what you've seen now, unfortunately, is the fact the Chinese are willing to do it. The Chinese have invested all over the globe. And, you know, America's seeing this as a, oh, those bad Chinese. Well, they're just ahead of the curve. They, and they just invest with a century in mind, not with next year's earnings in mind. That's where we're still in trouble. Take a look at the North American gigafactory plans between now and 2030. And there's 20 to 25 gigafactories on there. And we just saw another nine plus billion dollars given to like Ford and SK to build gigafactory capacity. There is one permitted greenfield lithium project in the United States right now. That's Lithium America's Thacker Pass, which will be built, which will take four years to get built and come fully online. That supply, which GM has 100% of because they invested ahead of the curve, that will be wiped out by one 50-gigawatt-hour gigafactory. It'll take all of it. What about the other guys? Where is it going to come from? You know, Tesla's building a a big converter in Corpus Christi. The lithium that they need to run through that process hasn't been brought into production yet. That's incredible. Do you see more auto manufacturers kind of getting to the head of the line here and saying, we're going to invest in the mine itself. Is that maybe where some of the assets come from? Ford has signed a bunch of contracts. Some are in production, but they have a very limited amount from those players because those players have many, many customers. They've also invested in some early stage projects. This is this is going to be increasingly a problem. In two years, you'd have another podcast on, gee, why didn't we see this coming? Right. <laughs> Well, hopefully some people are listening today or, you know, when this goes live. Let's talk about some innovations then that have happened maybe in in the extraction or techniques. Has there been any innovations or techniques that have come to light that make this extraction process faster, safer, uh, more plentiful? You know, you're really tethered to this market. So what have you seen and what can you share with us on that? What really has happened in the last five years is the Chinese have really figured out how to do conventional technology to a very high level that's good enough for battery because you have to understand that the original lithium industry was really predicated on industrial demands and battery requires a much higher quality product that the plants that were out there weren't designed to do but you're hearing a lot now about direct lithium extraction and you know people are out there saying it's we have a process that's 10,000 times faster that's absolute abject nonsense <laughs> 
And nobody's brought that to market. There's only one company doing a modified form of DLE in, in the West. The Chinese have some moderately successful direct lithium extraction, uh, but that most of those assets use ponds too. I mean, the real issue here is that there's a lot of brine in North America that's associated with oil fields. You have to have direct lithium extraction to exploit that. The evaporation characteristics in North America aren't like they are at 4,000 meters in the Andes, where it's sun all day, wind. And we can't build ponds and extract lithium the way they do in South America very effectively in North America. So direct lithium extraction will unlock both quantity and quality because direct lithium extraction really will be able to do a, a higher quality product if it's properly implemented. But we're still probably five years away from seeing any major impact. I'm on the board of a DLE company, so I'm, I'm not anti-DLE, but I am a rational actor in the industry or try to be. And I don't talk about it like clickbait artists that work <laughs> for major news outlets who like to say this is the next big thing. Well, speaking of the next big thing, you also can't have a conversation on lithium without people saying, well, what about sodium replacements or other alternative technologies out there? How far are we away from things like that, even putting a, a dent in the supply of, of lithium? You know, what, what else is going on out there? It takes a really high lithium price to make sodium economic. And then sodium still has technology challenges. And it would only be for energy storage systems for renewables where that would get great traction. If you're talking about EVs, it would be more like if you were buying a $5,000 EV in China that's more like a glorified golf cart. Yeah, you could have sodium in that. But you're never going to get sodium where you have lithium-ion is. So, yeah, I, I, and I welcome sodium because anything that takes the pressure off of lithium, to me, is good for the, the, the lithium industry because it's just the lithium industry has – is small and it is not, it's not ready for prime time and prime time's here. That's the problem. There's new technologies out there, but they all include lithium. Mm -hmm. Whether you're talking about solid state or variations on the, the lithium theme, basically all the good stuff still comes back to a lithium chemical or lithium metal. It's clear to me that this isn't going away anytime soon. To your point, Wall Street thinks in days, not decades. But I think they'll come around. I think it's an interesting opportunity for people to start thinking about this as part of their portfolios. What questions should I have asked that I maybe didn't that you think our listeners should be aware of? I always ask that question on my yeah. podcast, too. And it's there is so much that you could talk about. My key themes are don't blame China. Because this is a self-inflicted wound. I was talking to the big automakers seven years ago, and they didn't want to hear it. They said, lithium's not our problem. It's the battery guy's problem. Don't blame China because the Western players didn't listen. But there are huge opportunities here. Well, that's fascinating. And I really appreciate you taking the time today. For our listeners that would like to learn more about Joe and the extensive work you do, I mentioned you do podcasts, you do a lot of articles. You've, I've seen you on a couple of really great videos, really talking about all things lithium. I'd encourage everyone to start with your website, which is globallithium.net. Encourage you to go there. Um, I did a lot of research on that site myself to get ready for this. And you do a really great job really explaining this in a, in a way that people can understand. So 
Joe, once again, you know, thank you for being on uh, Sprout Radio. My pleasure. This podcast is provided for information purposes only from sources believed to be reliable. However, Sprout does not warrant its completeness or accuracy. Any opinions and estimates constitute our judgment as of the date of this material and are subject to change without notice. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This communication is not intended as an offer or solicitation for the purchase or sale of any financial instrument. Any opinions and recommendations herein do not take into account individual client circumstances, objectives or needs and are not intended as recommendations of particular securities, financial instruments or strategies. You must make your own independent decisions regarding any securities, financial instruments or strategies mentioned or related to the information herein. This communication may not be redistributed or retransmitted in whole or in part or in any form or manner without the express written consent of Sprott. Any unauthorized use or disclosure is prohibited. Receipt and review of this information constitutes your agreement not to redistribute or retransmit the contents and information contained in this communication without first obtaining express permission from an authorized officer of Sprott.